Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can take it and find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're making your way there, uh, I was reminded of a, of a story uh, of, of a man in Africa. He was a former Muslim, but he, had, he converted to Christianity, and he converted to believe in the Lord Jesus. And his friends pressed on him, and they say, well, why would you put your faith in Jesus? And this former Muslim replied, if you were lost and came to a fork in the road, not knowing which way to turn, but you found two men, one dead, the other alive, who would you ask directions from? That was me, he said. The two men were Muhammad and Jesus. I decided to listen to the, the living one. And he pointed me the way I should go, because he is the road, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6. We can all say this morning, followers of Jesus, we can all say the same thing because of the death of Jesus and because Jesus is alive. We can say the same thing to death. And it's something Ray Ortland posted. He posted what he called a memo to death. And, uh, and uh, something, again, we can all share. Here's what he wrote. April 17th, 2022. To death. From. Ray. And put your own name in there. Here's the memo. It says, you own me as much as you owned him. So have an especially wretched day while I rejoice my fool head off. What's more, death? I will soon dance on your grave. Sheesh, what a sorry loser you are, thanks to him. It's the victory of the tomb and the victory of the Lord Jesus over the tomb that we emphasize this morning. And our theme for this morning comes at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Really, verses 54 through 57, where Paul says these words after this long chapter. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, then will be come to pass what is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has kind of been, he, point, he kind of points a spotlight at a number of different issues going on within the church. And he invites the people uh, that he's writing to, to, to give a, a fair amount of scrutiny to that topic in light of God's truth, in light of God's word, in light of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Paul himself is, scrutinizes the way the church is doing things throughout this book, and at times he even invites the church to scrutinize him. So he brings up a topic, and then he examines it, often, often drawing the attention of the reader to the death of Christ for sinners. And I say I like to say, because when we get into chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul points the spotlight directly at the doctrine of resurrection. He spends no less than 58 verses, as we know them anyways, making a case for the bodily resurrection of Christians, a case he builds off of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm going to do this morning is we're actually going to go through this entire chapter very, very survey-like. 
But it's important because this is just, it's just one big meal for us as we think about the resurrection. And this morning I want to give you five arguments for the resurrection that Paul makes. Five arguments for the resurrection. And the first one is the empirical argument. And that is, what's the evidence? So I know that's a, maybe a big word and I was lucky enough this morning I spelled it right on my first try. Uh, empirical argument. And this is answering the question, what evidence is there that Jesus actually, what evidence is there that we will rise from the dead? And so Paul spends the first 11 verses talking about this. And he first talks to them in the first couple verses there, verses 1 and 2, he talks to them about the gospel they believed for themselves, that they themselves experienced new life. And Pastor Matter read these verses, so we won't read through a lot of them, but if you remember, there in verse 1 and 2, this salvation has a past, a present, and a future. So he says, I preach to you, verse 1, which you received, there's the past, in which you now stand, there's the present, and by which you are being saved, there's the future. So when you place your faith in Christ, a lot of things become new. You receive new life. You're given new life. You experience a new birth. You're made a new creation. And so Paul is pointing them to their own experience. That when they encountered the risen Jesus through the gospel that Paul preached, they experienced this new birth, this new creation. But it wasn't just something in the past. It was something in which they stood in the present. And so when a sinner sinner repents of their sins, believes the gospel, and is made a new creation, it's not something you go in and out of. I'm reminded of, of, of many, many of the new cars today that are made. They have, they have uh, lane assist, and I actually had the privilege of driving one of these things. I don't own one, but I had the privilege of driving one of these things just recently. It's called lane assist. And it's, it's, you can turn it off and on, but what, what happens is as you're driving down the road, if you were to take your hands off of the steering wheel, and let me just plug, not, I'm not suggesting anybody do this, but if you took your hands off the steering wheel and you start going into the next lane, it'll automatically steer you back into the lane that you should be in. Same thing if you start going towards the shoulder, it'll steer you right back into the lane. And you can just come like a little pinball going back and forth between the two lanes as you're going down the road. And as silly as that is, that kind of is what makes me think of the gospel. It, it, It keeps us in the lane. There's no going in and out, off and on. God saves us and keeps us. And so this gospel that they believed for themselves, it has a past, it has a present, and it has a future. You are being saved. This is the resurrection. Paul says that if if you don't believe the gospel in these three things, okay, so if you don't believe there's a past, present, and future to the gospel, notice what he says at the end of verse 2. You've believed in vain. There is a vain believing in the gospel if these three things aren't part of it. It's either the full gospel or no gospel. And so they had the gospel they believed for themselves. But then in verses 3 through 8, it talks about the testimony they received from others. That is, they, they heard the experience of others. And there's this whole, it's a, it, when Paul says in verses 3 through 8, he talks about the many different people Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. And we won't go through all that right now. But the idea is Christ died for their sins, Christ rose from the dead. Okay, so Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins, and he rose from the dead, and he is still alive even today. And Paul is telling them, if you want proof, if you want an argument, if you want an empirical argument, an evidence-based argument for the resurrection, there is 500, maybe a little less because some have died since then, but there's 500 people at one time Jesus appeared to. It's about three times maybe or two times the size of what we got in here. 
all eyes seeing Jesus. But not this argument that Paul is giving them about this evidence. Not only did they experience it for themselves, not only did they hear the experience of others, but they also witnessed the experience in Paul in verses 9 through 11. Paul was a persecutor of the church, of the gospel. And then Paul becomes a preacher of the gospel. The only way a man like Paul, who goes from killing people who believe in the gospel to preaching that very gospel he tried to destroy, the only way a man like Paul can go from hater of Jesus to follower of Jesus is the power of a man, the God-man, who is dead but is now alive. I love these triumphant verses from Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. And I probably could have plugged this in anywhere, but when I'm talking about the change that Paul experienced, Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says, uh, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Oh, and by the way, I've got the keys to death in Hades itself. This evidence, this empirical argument that Paul is making, it all, it, it all centers around change. Being a follower of the one who holds the, death, the keys to death in Hades, that'll change a person. But Paul doesn't just give an empirical argument, he gives a logical argument in the next section, in verses 12 to 19. This is basically, why is this such a big deal? Why does it, I mean, they're wrestling with this. Why does it really matter if Jesus rose from the dead or not? Why does it really matter even uh, if we rise from the dead? I mean, what's the big deal? What if we just died and no bodily resurrection? And it's just, I mean, what's the big deal about that? So Paul's going to answer this question. And he tells them three things. He tells them, first of all, without the resurrection, we have a hopeless faith. He tells them without the resurrection, we have a useless faith. And he tells them that without the resurrection, we have an aimless faith. So we ha- without the resurrection, we have a hopeless faith. Verses 12 and 13 and verse 16. And Paul kind of does a reverse thing here, which is kind of interesting. Paul says, if we don't rise from the dead, then neither did Jesus. He starts with us and then works back to Jesus. Normally we start with Jesus and work towards us. Paul says, no, if there is no bodily resurrection for us who believed in Jesus, then Jesus is still dead. It's a faith that leaves our bodies in the grave. Or it's a, it's, a, it's a faith that leaves us hopeless. It's a faith that says that Jesus hasn't risen. But Jesus didn't just come to redeem our souls. He came to redeem our bodies as well. And redemption will be complete when our bodies are set free from this bondage to corruption. When our bodies are raised from the dead and reunited with our souls. Salvation is for body and soul. So it's, it's a hopeless faith. If, if, if the resurrection isn't happened, Jesus didn't arise from the dead, then we have a hopeless faith. There's, there's nowhere to go after this. And without the resurrection, we have a useless faith. So if the hopeless faith doesn't get God right, or it doesn't get, the, it doesn't get God right, this useless faith doesn't get the grave right. Look at uh, verses 14 and 15. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. It's a useless faith. It's a faith that leaves our bodies in the grave. 
A faith where the grave gets the final say. That's a useless faith. Every faith and every system of religion, whatever you might be believing in this morning, any faith that does not confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father is, a use, is useless in the end. Because the Bible tells us, in all the songs we just sang, tell us that the grave doesn't get the final say. It doesn't harness the greatest power. It hasn't remained undefeated. This useless faith doesn't get the grave right, doesn't get God right. Notice what he says here. It's a faith that misrepresents God. Beware of any system of religion that misrepresents God, his promises, his word, his character. And ultimately, it doesn't get the gospel right. Verse 17 and 18, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And by the way, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, perished. It doesn't get the grave right, it doesn't get God right, it doesn't get the gospel right. So it's a hopeless faith, it's a useless faith. And the resurrection, is, it's an aimless faith. Because the end of all this is we just, we perish. And that's just kind of the end. Verse 18 and verse 19. We perish in the end. And that's why Paul says we, we ought to be the most pitied out of anybody. If where this ends is the grave and that's it, man, Christians are the most pathetic, sad people on the face of the planet. Any religion that follows a dead savior, a dead prophet, a dead leader, a dead whatever, which is all others, by the way, is an eternally hopeless, ultimately useless, and certainly aimless religion. You find the bones of Jesus, you end Christianity. Now this is a big deal. And he's, he's, he's talking logically here because this has everything to do about our purpose and our identity in life. Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century philosopher, wrote these words. He says, he says there is within every soul a thirst for happiness and meaning. Every single person... Every single person in here, outside of us, whether they're at church, not at church, whether they consider themselves religious or not, every person is looking for a place to land their identity and purpose. And we find that nothing in this world can satisfy. These, uh, these words here, this idea of purpose, reminded me of a story of a Christian apologist. Maybe some of you may know him. His name's Josh McDowell. And he was a college student, and he actually hated Christianity. He hated God. He had one of the most awful upbringings you could possibly have with a, with a drunk father that abused him and his wife and other things going on. And he grew up just to hate God. And he's going to this secular university. He's in college. And he happens to bump into this Christian group that met on campus. And he kind of starts sitting near him and sitting around him. And every time they'd start talking about God, he would lean back in his chair and cross his arms and, you know, snuff his nose and pretend like he wasn't interested, but he really was. And he absolutely hated religion and he hated Christianity. And actually, in his own words, he says, my goal was to find my identity and purpose in life, but everything I tried left me empty and without answers. He would drudge through Monday through Friday just to get to the parties of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then start over again Monday morning. And then he bumped into this Christian group. And he started kind of making fun of them. And so this Christian group challenged him. They said, you go find an intellectual answer, an intellectual argument to prove that Jesus never rose from the dead. And we'll give it all up. 
And Joshua, that was just, you know, yeah, sure, whatever. And he just continued to tell them, oh, I hate religion, I hate religion. They kept challenging him. So Josh, he left school for months. And he traveled all over America and Europe, visiting museums and libraries, digging up all the information, all the ammo he could to prove that Jesus was still dead, that, this, that the Bible was made up, and that it was all just a big farce. And he was in Europe sitting at the library, and he was studying some outdated, no longer published book when he exclaimed in the middle, it's true. It's true. Jesus was who he said he was. He did rise from the dead. And he placed his faith in Jesus. But he would say, however, it wasn't, it wasn't the evidence that brought him to Christ. He said what caused him to surrender his life to Christ was realizing how much Jesus loved him and that he died for him. It's purpose. It's identity. And he said, I finally found my identity in the Jesus who died for me, the Jesus who is no longer dead, who has risen from the dead. Paul gives another argument in the verses that follow. In the sequential argument, now that is, they're, so now they're going to ask in verses 20 to 34, okay, so, so what's the order of things? How does this all lay out? And so Paul's going to kind of lay out the sequence of how things happen with this resurrection. So, and he gives us three different images of Jesus, okay? Jesus as the first fruits, Jesus as the conqueror, and Jesus as the life giver. So Jesus is the first fruits, verses 20 to 23. Christ has been raised. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so it, back in the, the first fruits, the idea there is back in the Old Testament, the, the priest would actually wave the, the, the sheaf of the harvest before the Lord, just kind of signifying that the whole sar- harvest belonged to God. And that's what Jesus' resurrection is. It's the guarantee of all future resurrection. Jesus rose first, and then at his coming, all who have died in him will rise to meet him in the air. But Jesus, as it says in verses 24 to 28 in your Bibles, is not just the first fruits, he is the conqueror. It says, then comes the end. So Jesus comes, those meet, meet him in the air, and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus will cast away death in verse 26. This is what taught in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 21, verse 14. Notice what it says. Remember, Jesus says, I hold the keys to death in Hades. Here's what it says in Revelation 20. He says, then death in Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then over in chapter 21, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, crying, pain, for the former things have passed away. So because Jesus rose, death will die. We can say that even now, death is on its deathbed. And in the new heaven and new earth, there will be a perfect reigning of the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice the end of this, in verse 29. So Jesus is the first fruits. He goes first. We follow him because Jesus is the first. And then he comes and he reigns and he gets rid of death once and for all and defeats it. And in verses 29 through 34, Jesus is the life giver. 
Now I want to spend some time here, because you might read verse 29 and be kind of caught off guard by this. Notice what it says. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by the pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul kind of gets a little direct here with them, doesn't he? And by the way, that whole idea of, of, of dying or being baptized on behalf of the dead, basically what Paul is asking is this. If the dead aren't raised, why do we keep bringing more people into the faith? Shouldn't we just let it die out? I mean, shouldn't we just let that generation of Christians, just let, let whatever generation is left, let them die and don't bring any more people into the faith? Yet we do continue to bring people into the faith. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this baptism is talking about a new generation of Christians. It's a reminder that a new generation of gospel believers moves in even when one generation moves up to heaven. Jesus transforms us. He, he gives us life. And notice, did you notice this as well? He transforms our suffering. Paul says, I die every day. And I think that's what, that's what he means. I die every day. While new people are being brought, in, being brought into the faith. And then in verses 33 to 34 is when he gets the really strong words. We're like, man, this is Easter Sunday. And Paul, I mean, my goodness, this is the resurrection. And this is, what, is this how Paul is talking? Yet Paul is saying any sort of mindset that is kind of this idea of, of, you know, who cares about the resurrection? Because like it says in verse 32, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is telling them to wake up. And to live like Jesus has been raised. Eat, drink, and die. You know, we hang a lot of signs in our houses. My generation, it was live, laugh, love was like a really big one that everybody had hanging everywhere. It was, it was, it was on lockers and it was in houses. And we hang up other stuff in our houses and things like this. But if we're being honest about our real philosophy of life, for those without Christ, it might as well say that. Eat, drink, die. Now, that probably wouldn't give guests to your house the most homey feeling. But my fear is that while this, may, this sign may not be hung in our homes, this philosophy is at home in our hearts. And it may be the most honest thing we could hang in our house. If Jesus is not raised and our end is just the grave, Eat, drink, die. And if you're being honest with yourself, would you say this describes you? Paul is saying because Jesus rose, we know that death is not an event at the end, but an existence for eternity for those who don't know Jesus. So here's the reality. Without Christ, it's eat, drink, die, and then die forever. And Satan likes to hide that last one. Because, you know, again, here, here's the idea. We, we eat, we drink, we die, and then there's nothing after that. We're good to go. 
But if you remember when we read back in Revelation, it talks about uh, Jesus casting death into Hades into the lake of fire. Then he says, this is the second death. Death is far worse than you think, than we think naturally, because death isn't just an event that happens at the end of our lives. It's an, exist, an existence that lasts for eternity. For those who don't know Jesus... And so without Christ, it is eat, drink, die, and then at that judgment, be cast into the lake of fire and die forever. Satan likes to hide that, and he also likes to hide the fact that Jesus, that those in Jesus do live forever, that there's life in the world to come. Paul gives another argument here. The fourth one out of five And that is the technical argument about the resurrection. This is in verses 35 through 49. So he's going to say, someone will ask, basically, how does this happen? How are the dead raised? That's verse 35. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And there's some people who, who, uh, some commentators talk about how, you know, when we we die, uh, we go into the ground and then certain trees and stuff actually build their roots, and they've actually, they found an apple tree. Some, some time ago I read in a commentary that its roots actually went in through the coffin. So it was almost like the people eating the apple were kind of, you know, the tree was getting its nourishment from a coffin, from somebody's dead body. So it was kind of this idea like, well, what, what body are we going to look like? I mean, what if, our, what if our ashes were scattered? What if we're all over the place? What are we going to look like? And again, you would think like this is a pretty normal question, but the Corinthians were kind of, knee-deep into a lot of false teaching. And Paul's response here is pretty straightforward again. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the, here's, here's the answer. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. For not all the flesh is the same flesh. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And even there's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. And the glory of the heavenly body is different from the glory of the earthly. There's one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars, for they all differ from each other. And then in verse 42 he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Our bodies, what is sown, okay, that's our bodies, is perishable. But when it's raised, it's imperishable, it's new. And so he says there's continuity but not exactly the same. It'll be our body. All right, so when I die, no matter whatever that looks like, and I get put in the ground and my body decays, goes away. When I'm resurrected, it'll be my body, but it won't be the exact same body. It's like a seed. When you put a seed in the ground, you don't expect a seed to grow. I mean, if you plant tulips or roses or whatever it is. Do those have seeds? I'm not very good at this. But, you know, whatever seed you put in the ground, if it's wheat, I think Paul uses wheat. We'll start with that. Uh, Wheat or some other grain. You put wheat in the ground, you expect wheat to come up. It's going to be from that seed. It's going to be the same kind, but it's going to be different. It's going to be even more beautiful as a flower is more beautiful than the seed. But it's got to die first. So it's going to be you, but a very different you. You won't be raised as a bird, a dog, an angel, or anything like that. You'll have a spiritual body, body, a spiritual body, fit for heaven. And you'll have beauty and not decay. Just like the flower is better than the seed. 
Today we have a natural body, an earthly body. Later we'll have a body fit for heaven. Today we have a perishable body. Later a body that is imperishable. That's what verse 46 says. If you look down there, it says it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. It's just a very, it's a very logical, another logical argument here. The, the natural comes first, you die, and then the spiritual comes. So God will give us an imperishable body. We bear a dual image according to verse 49. Look at verse 49 before we move on to our last section here. 49 says, just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, so we have this dual image. When we're on this earth, we have the image of the man of dust. We're perishable. We're, we're like dust. But one day we'll bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For we know, and here, here's again, here's a distinction. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Perishable for the imperishable, a tent for a building. That's kind of the technical side of things. Let's look at the final argument. And kind of where the theme and kind of where everything kind of pours into here in this final section the practical argument. And it's, so what? So what? And Paul tells us three things in this passage. We will be changed. We will be victorious. And so we ought to abound in the work of the Lord. We will be changed, verses 50 to 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, okay, your body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body can't go to heaven. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And yes, it's a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Okay, we're not all going to die. Some might be alive when Jesus returns. But he says we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. He says, your body is gonna, it's going to be changed in some way. I don't know how. Paul didn't even know how. It's a mystery. But your body is going to be changed so that it will be fit for heaven. We need a new body to live in the presence of God forever. We need a glorified body. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus promises. We need a change And God provides that change for those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised them from the dead. Those who have done that will be saved, will be changed. And this is immensely practical. Because he's talking about the change that will take place for those who know Jesus, this perishable putting on imperishable. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is, we're all going to the grave. You know, it's eat, drink, die. We're all going to hit that die. But what's beyond the grave for you? What's beyond the grave for you? Is it that second death? Or is it a changed body? We will be victorious. We will be changed. We will be victorious. Verse 54 through 57. Sin is what causes death. And he says it's the law that brings the realization of sin. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a wretchedness in this life, isn't there? Even on Easter Sunday, we can sense it sometimes. There is a wretchedness in this life that can leave us feeling defeated and hopeless. But through Christ, we have resurrection hope. And it all leads for the Christian to one great conclusion, victory over death. That's the future. And then Paul says something so simple and practical to wrap up this entire section on the doctrine of the resurrection. In verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What's, what's, what's the application of all this? Go work for Jesus. Jesus is going to take you to heaven one day. Jesus is going to give you a body, even though this one will wear out. There will be tears with this body. There will be pain with this body. There will be death with this body. It's, it's going to happen. But Jesus has a plan for you. And Jesus has a plan not just to redeem our souls, but to redeem our bodies. When there's hope beyond the grave, there's hope in this life. And when there's hope beyond the grave, there's motivation in this life. To be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I go back to verse 34, where, where Paul again exhorts him, says, Wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, and do not go on sinning. Notice what he says, for some have no knowledge of God. Some people don't know. Some people don't know this is even available. So go work for Jesus. Just the other day, I was at a local coffee shop here in town, and I ran into Steve English. Some of you know him. Steve is a, is a local pastor here in the area, great guy, gospel-centered, loves Jesus, and in the course of our conversation, Steve, Steve shared with me how he used to live in the Chicago area and was actually uh, a bodyguard for Erwin Lutzer. Some of you, that, might, that name might ring a bell. He was a former pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. Well, while he was there, he also took a course on preaching when he was enrolled in Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is in the Chicago area. And Erwin Lutzer actually taught the class. And one day, Erwin Lutzer, after he got finished with the lecture, he told all of his students, be sure to bring a coat with you next time we have class. And so, sure enough, the whole class brought coats to the, all the students brought coats to the next class. And Erwin would lead them, and had, he had them all meet at a, at a cemetery in the, the middle of Deerfield, Illinois, just outside Chicago, which is one of the richest neighborhoods ever. It's, and and this, this, this cemetery was in the middle of a very busy uh, business district. There was an IHOP across the street and just a lot of people, go, a lot of things going on down there. And he has them meet at this cemetery and he, he brings them to the middle of this cemetery where there was a guy who passed away in the 1800s and I think the name was John. And so he gathers his students all around. And then as they stand, stood around this, this tombstone of a man who died in the 1800s, all of a sudden, Luther, and if you know Luther, you know, like when he says God, it's God. You know, very, just very, very kind of deep kind of voice. But Steve was telling the story that all of a sudden, Luther lifted his hands in the air and he bent over towards the grave and he started yelling as loud as he could, John, come up. John, wake up. John, come out of the grave. John, come out, come out. And by this time, people are walking by and they're starting to turn their heads and wonder what's going on. 
And the class, who's used to Erwin Lutzer being, you know, he's a passionate guy, but not a very fiery guy. By this time, they're, they're just, there's in, in horror and shock. And Erwin turns to them and goes, you know, I don't think I yelled loud enough. And so he did it again. Put his hands in the air, and he got even lower to the grave, and he's yelling, John, John, come up. And at the end of it, he turned his students' attention to Ezekiel chapter 37. It's the prophet Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. Where the prophet looks at all these dead bones, and he calls them to wake up, and they did. As a matter of fact, here's what it says. And Lutzer even asked his students, he says, what did Ezekiel have that I don't? And it's found, the answer was found in Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And at that moment, his students got it. Steve told me that at that moment, they all got the point. It's God's word that gives life. And if you're in here this morning and you're spiritually dead, I can yell at you until I'm blue in the face. To live, to inherit this eternal life through Jesus Christ. But unless you encounter the living Jesus through God's living word, ye will stay dead in your sins. And so the invite is to do just that. To believe in the Lord Jesus who died for your sins. Like Paul said at the very beginning, he delivered was of first importance. Here's the most important thing. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Christian... Because of Jesus, death is a sorry loser. Death owns you as much as it owned Jesus. Not at all. So live, Christian. Live. Live by the power of the crucified and risen Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you didn't leave us without some some evidence, some case being made for the resurrection. Lord, we thank you that when a person encounters the living Jesus through your living word, the Bible, and they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and they believe in their heart that you raised Jesus from the dead, they'll be saved. And so, Lord, I pray that if there is someone in here and they're spiritually dead, they're in a spiritual tomb, Lord, I can yell their name all day long, but unless they hear your voice coming from your word, pointing them to your Savior, the Lord Jesus, we know that they'll be spiritually dead forever. So awaken those who need Jesus. And Lord, for Christians, life is getting tiresome, it's getting weary, and we just experience the wretchedness of what it means to live in this earthly, natural body. Lord, help us to say, like we said at the beginning, help us to look death right in the face and say, death, you own me as much as you owned my Savior. And that you are a terrible loser because of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.